0: I'm going to die. I'm going to die historic on the Fury Road. Welcome to the
1: Mad Max minute. Helen Keller once said, Tyranny cannot defeat the power of ideas. This is Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick.
0: And I'm Julia.
1: And today we're talking about Minute 117, which begins with the rolling credits for special effects, supervised by Dan Oliver and Andy Williams, and it ends with the credits for the property team, led by Andrew Orlando. But that is the last of the credits talk you will hear today, because as we've been saying all week, we don't talk about credits. We talk about other stuff. And today, in particular, we are talking about the bad guys. People like Immortan Joe and his sons and the war boys and Nux to a certain extent. It's time to focus on the antagonistic forces, and I want to start out today by asking the question, Immorton Joe and the Toe Cutter, are they the same? Are they different? Is the only main difference the fact that one controls a motorcycle gang versus one controlling an army? What are we looking at between these two guys? Because they share the actor, but that can't be the only thing that they share.
0: Definitely not. They share more than just an actor. If Toe Cutter had survived, I can see him taking a path that would lead him to a similar place as Immortan Joe. I don't think he has the skills to take him to the exact same place. Immortan Joe's history as a military man really drove how he ended up exactly where he ended up. But if Toe Cutter had survived the proper apocalypse, because in the first movie, the society was on a downward spiral, but the actual apocalypse hadn't happened yet. Right. So let's say if he survived the apocalypse, I think he would have followed a path similar to the movies. We go from this biker gang of Toe Cutter to... A larger, more conglomerate biker gang of the Lord Humongous. And we also increase not only power and influence, but also viciousness and violence also increases. I think he would have increased those aspects as well. Then we move on in movie to an actual settlement where order is maintained through violence, through threat of violence. I can see Toe Cutter moving on, progressing, evolving into that type of position. And then just like he took a biker gang in my little scenario here, just like he took a biker gang and turned into a conglomeration of biker gangs, taking a barter town, a central point with some sense of order, turning it into a conglomeration of points of order, centers of order. Hmm. I think he could have done those things.
1: Yeah, you look at the story of a Morton Joe in the comics, and I know we're getting outside of the movie here when I talk about the comics, but Colonel Joe Moore starts off as the toe cutter. He is an army man from the water wars, and he is banding together anyone who will follow him, and he has the ruthlessness and the charisma to drag them along, and through a, frankly, uncanny circumstance where he works together with a small group of commandos to take the citadel, that cements his legend as some immortal figure. So it's just a freak happening that made him legendary. He was already larger than life because he went across the wasteland, gathering people up, adding them to his karmada, and being ruthless along the way. But it wasn't until he fought his way through the Citadel, and claimed it for himself, that people started thinking, oh, he must be immortal, let's call him an Immortan. And then he was able to turn his military cadre into a fanatical cult, based on this legend that he forged.
0: It seems to me, I know that we're drawing comparisons between Toe Cutter and Immortan Joe right now, but I would like to draw our attention to comparisons between Papagallo, Auntie Entity, and Immortan Joe. Okay. All three of them, when the apocalypse happened, thereabouts, somewhere during that process, took the opportunity and started a center of civilization and that had very different uh, purposes and survived in different ways or didn't survive in two of the cases. He may have more in common with the two of them, then toe cutter
1: i do want to put a caveat on that and morton joe didn't build the citadel himself he essentially waltzed into a barter town type situation and threw auntie out there were other people that did the hard work and he just came in and said this is mine now because that's how he was and that's really how the toe cutter operated his operation as well him and his acolytes would roll into town and say, This is mine now. Anybody who doesn't want to play along can get smashed. Like, literally, get smashed with an axe and, you know, brutalized.
0: It sounds like we're saying that a Morton Joe pulls from the entire earlier series. I think there are aspects of everybody in him.
1: I feel like we've said that before. It's been at least 100 episodes, I'm sure. Since we last said it.
0: Because I know we would like to compare him to the villains. So Papagallo probably isn't the right person to compare him to. But Papagallo knew of a place where there was a refinery out away from everybody. So when things went south, he went there, picking people up along the way until he had that beautiful word that you said before. Till he had a carmada and made a settlement. He didn't build it from scratch. He took over Somehow, I doubt it was violent, because he doesn't seem like a particularly violent man, but he took over a location that was already established. And he probably changed it, built the walls, especially the tire wall, I'm sure, in a similar way that Joe, yes, he came to this aquifer tapping facility and took it over, but I suspect he improved it a great deal. I suspect that all the greenery, all the growing is all Joe. I suspect that there were the beginnings of crane works around there, and Joe expanded on that idea to the point where they are using the entire interior of those three pillars. Mm.
1: So it's not just that Joe is a scavenger. He is also, in his own right, capable of building things up.
0: Which is, dare I say, an admirable quality? Oh yeah, Joe has some
1: good qualities. Not All of them are the type of quality that you want everybody to embody, but he is a effective leader. He is a brutal combatant. He has good reasoning skills and abilities of deduction. He is also a brutal individual who doesn't value human life the way that everyday people should.
0: Which sounds a lot to me like a description of the Toe Cutter. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And that leads me to my second part of the question. Is one necessarily a better villain than the other?
0: No, I think they're very different. Toe Cutter was the most fun villain out of the four movies. We enjoyed watching Toe Cutter. There were times when we were doing the first movie minute by minute and we'd been with the Toe Cutter and his gang for a while. There were times we kind of forgot that they were the villains because he's very charismatic. And yes, he ruled his gang with an iron fist. But even the scene where he takes Johnny out for a walk in the water, shoves a gun into his face. We were like, oh, look at this scene. It's gorgeous. We were not at all bothered by the way he was running his gang Mm -hmm. because he was just fun to watch.
1: I look at the toe cutter as a force of chaos. He blows around like the wind. Sometimes a satisfying breeze, sometimes a destructive torrent, based solely on his mood at that particular moment. He is so unpredictable moment to moment that he's great for a story about men trying to hold order in a world that's falling apart. Yes. He's a great villain for that setting.
0: So you would classify him as a chaotic evil?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And then a Morton Joe would be a lawful evil.
1: Absolutely. Because Joe is all about fanatical devotion to his goals, and everybody must conform to his ideas, or they don't get water, they don't get food, they get thrown from the side of the Citadel. If you're not on board with Joe's plans, guess what? You're not going to be having any remotely close part of them. So for the kind of story that Immortan Joe is the antagonist for, he's a great antagonist. Because Fury Road is a story of rebellion. Rebellion against injustice, against cruelty. It's women standing up to a patriarchal system that abuses them and treats them like property. Just like it's written on the walls of the harem. I think you're absolutely right that one does not necessarily outshine the other because for the stories they tell... They're both spectacular.
0: And referencing the lawful evil versus chaotic evil is part of that chart of the nine alignments. And for my limited understanding of the chart, a placement of an individual on that chart does not necessarily define them as a protagonist or an antagonist. It doesn't really define them much at all beyond how they behave. You can be a lawful evil alignment and still be the protagonist in a movie
1: yeah some would say that if your character archetype is a banker that he is a lawful evil type because he is very much about following the rules and he will absolutely kick that old lady out of her house if she does not pay her mortgage payments
0: what's that leonardo dicaprio movie where he's a stock market guy
1: oh the wolf of wall street the
0: wolf of wall street he's the protagonist which is an odd word to use But he is absolutely, I think he's probably more neutral evil than lawful evil, but he's the protagonist of that movie. So a placement on that chart does not define your place in a piece of media.
1: Fury Road, from Immortan Joe's perspective, would probably be a lot like Taken, where an older gentleman, this time played by Hugh Keysburn instead of Liam Neeson, has the young woman under his... Charge, you could say.
0: Yeah, he would call it protection.
1: Yeah, he is. charge. He is protecting them, and they have been stolen away by this person who betrayed him. And he is on a rescue mission to get them back.
0: His treasures. Yeah. Which makes it sound like he values them. There are some people in the world who use that term treasure as a term of endearment. He doesn't mean it that way. He means valuable property. Mm-hmm.
1: He uses a lot of abuser speak. Yes, he does. Yeah. One person that does not use a lot of abuser speak, not sincerely at least, is Nux, who represents the reformed main character, the former child soldier who heard for the first time in his life an alternative opinion and realized that the cult that he had been part of all of his life was garbage.
0: It's going to be difficult to talk about Nux and his arc and his outcome without talking about Capable as well. So let's get that out of the way. Nux obviously has a very strong arc. I would say his is the most dramatic and strongest arc of all of our various protagonists. Oh,
1: absolutely. He definitely changes the most out of anybody in this movie.
0: Yes. So let's start off with the question. Could Nux have taken his arc without Capable?
1: I'm going to say no.
0: I think I agree with you
1: because capable is the one that gave him the time of day who offered him a willing ear for him to vent his frustrations and his doubts. And she's also the one that gave him a chance to prove himself. Nobody else wanted to do that. Everybody else wanted to treat him as a hostile force. And capable was the only one that stopped for a moment and said, oh, hey, maybe you're not The absolute evil creature that everybody sees all of the war boys as.
0: I have thought of a comparison between Joe and Nux relationship and Capable and Nux's relationship. Starting off with Joe and Nux, Joe gives Nux an opportunity to board the war rig and take Furiosa out. And he bestows glory upon Nux and the promise of more. And this is a monumental moment for Nux, it is everything he's ever wanted. And he is practically weeping with joy. So he gets thrown onto the war rig and he immediately trips and falls down, nearly falls off the rig, loses the gun that Joe had given him, like bestowed upon him, practically. And he gets a mediocre from Joe. Mm-hmm. We see Nux fail through no fault of his own. It was an accident. And he is dismissed by the person that he worships.
1: Going even before that moment, Nux saw Morton Joe as a literal god. That The slightest look was such a blessing on his life that he was overjoyed with the slightest possible glance.
0: So we have that moment compared to when they're in the bog and nobody but Capable knows that Nux is on board yet. And everyone is outside the truck working in various ways. All of a sudden, the truck starts to move because Nux has jumped into the driver's seat and is trying to help. He got the truck moving. So he had this opportunity to help, and I'm sure that he was guided by Capable to do that. All we see is that she's in the cab with him. Yeah. And she defends him. She said, he just wants to help. He just wants to help. So he gets the truck moving out of the muck, but almost immediately it gets stuck again. Not one person blamed Nux for getting stuck in the mud. Not one person chastised him or looked down upon him because he got it stuck in the mud. Everybody just moved on with holding him up, but they got over that. And they just continued to work together to get it unstuck again. So we have Nux failing, making mistakes at two different points. Honestly, both of them are completely out of his control. Yeah. And the reactions from the people around him could not be more different. The second, being so much more attractive. When you make a mistake, when you fail at what you're doing, the best thing is to just move on. Work with people to get over it, to get past it, and to just move on. Joe doesn't just move on.
1: Yeah, he discards.
0: Yeah, he was done with Nux. Nux still could have completed his mission. He didn't fall off the rig. He could have pulled himself back up. Yes, he lost the gun, but he could have killed Furiosa another way. He still had that spike thing.
1: Yeah, just because Joe was of the opinion that Nux should not pike her in the spine and keep her breathing doesn't mean that if Nux had piked her in the spine, paralyzed her and kept her breathing, that Joe wouldn't have been satisfied, at least in some way. But when your whole M.O. is use them and then lose them, there's not a lot of room for second chances hmm There's not a lot of room for second chances.
0: Absolutely.
1: So I don't think we brought this up, but do you think when Capable says he wants to help, that it was Nux's idea to drive the war rig out of the bog? Or do you think it came from Capable's encouragement?
0: Ooh, I think that Nux was up on top of the tanker. We knew that he was in the back buggy up on top of the tanker. I suspect that through this ordeal of stopping and starting and getting stuck and moving on and all these people shooting at them, that he had moved from the back buggy to the front lookout. From that point, he could see the tree thing and that there was high ground just beyond it. He is smart. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. So I don't know how he and Capable got into the cab of the truck together. Was Capable in the cab. And Nux saw that she was in the cab by herself, so he felt safe going down there and saying, hey, just beyond that thing is high ground, we should go there.
1: Oh, I think Capable went and got him. Do you think
0: Capable went and got him?
1: She was in the cab with the other women, she was in the backseat with the lantern, and so when they're trying to get the thing unstuck from the mud, and Furiosa leaves with the gun, well suddenly Capable's all alone inside the cab, might as well go get Nux, he's a war boy, he knows how to do these things. He's a rev head.
0: I guess I like the idea of Nux being a little more proactive and coming down to the cab on his own volition. I definitely think that it was his point of view that gave him that knowledge of the high ground beyond the tree.
1: Oh, I could definitely see Capable coming up with the idea to get Nux behind the wheel and Nux offering that there was high ground just beyond the thing. Okay. The tree.
0: We have the same idea, just slightly different. We're definitely on the same page.
1: The whole idea of Nux is that he goes from being a tool to being a person. To the point that the Vuvolini and all of the others turn and look at him when they're talking about the plan to go back to the Citadel because they're looking for his opinion of the plan. And he has the opportunity to have a voice as part of the deliberation.
0: Which is very nice.
1: Yeah. Something that probably has never happened to him where... Someone of authority or a group of authority looked for his input in any way.
0: Maybe one of my favorite Nux moments that doesn't directly involve him is when the Vuvellini see Nux and Max getting out of the truck and they kind of get up in arms a bit and ask Furiosa about the men. She says, it's okay, they're reliable. That Nux has proven himself to Furiosa who I can't imagine has a great history with men. She was kidnapped by a man. She was sent to be a wife to Immortan Joe. She has been a part of this fighting force surrounded by men. Can't imagine she was treated well at all. So to prove himself to Furiosa that he is a reliable man, I think says a lot about how he has behaved over the last 12 hours that he has been in her company.
1: Well, that just leads me to my next question. In order for Nux's character arc to be satisfying, did he have to die?
0: Wow, this is a really hard one because I want to say no because I want to see him happy. But yeah, I think so. Because when we first meet him, his whole drive is to die glorious on the Fury Road. That's all he wants. I don't think he really cares about the purpose he cares that it's in service to a morton joe but he doesn't care if it's defending a tanker of mother's milk or getting the wives back or being a bodyguard to joe he doesn't care why he has no personal stakes in what's actually going on
1: i would argue against that i would yeah. say that at the beginning of the movie nux has drank so much of the kool-aid that. The only thing he wants is to die in service of the Immortan. He wants to die gloriously on the Fury Road. Glory being defined by Immortan Joe and the cult.
0: Right. What I mean is he doesn't care doing what task. He's not motivated by fighting to keep one thing safe over fighting to keep another thing safe. As long as it's in service to Joe, he doesn't care.
1: Okay. I didn't get that sense the first time around, but... By the end of the movie, he realizes that he's in a situation where he can't escape. And so he's voluntarily dying, not for Joe, not for some abstract God King idea of afterlife glory, but he's dying to preserve life.
0: He's dying for specific people for a specific reason. Mm -hmm. He still dies victorious on the Fury Road. He dies how he wanted to die the whole time. It's just with very different motivations. And I would argue that a purposeful motivation, like he ends with, to save people's lives, as opposed to in blind faith to Joe, is actually a more glorious death.
1: And you could argue that he was half-life to begin with. It's not like he had a long multi-decade life ahead of him. He was either going to die from Larry and Barry chewing at his windpipe or the night fevers or any number of those things. That's the thing about Half-Life Warboys is that they are half-lifes. They don't have a full life ahead of them. So if he's going to go down, he might as well go down the way he does. I could see that.
0: There was never going to be a happily ever after for Nux.
1: At one point in the movie, Capable and Nux were thinking that we're thinking that it could be the case, but from an overall story standpoint, yeah, there was no way that it was going to be good for them.
0: And I would hope that Capable would know better. That both of them would know better than to
1: than to have hope.
0: Yeah, because hope is a mistake. (laughs) Because we do know that the women understand that the war boys are half lives. That they don't have long to live. That they are being used as fodder specifically because they have no future. We know that they understand that. We also know that Nux understands that. So maybe they formed such a quick bond because they both knew he didn't have long. I have been critical of their bond. Mm -hmm. It's just so quick. And it feels like Nux is a rebound for Capable from Angharad. But... Understanding that they both know he is going to die, I think drives the quickness of the bond. Also kind of jumping back to Capable a little bit and her motivation in this relationship that she has formed with Nux. I think I would still classify it as a rebound, but not so negatively as I used to. And Herod didn't really need Capable. Yes, Capable was always by her side, but Eng Herod was fully independent. She wasn't slowed down by her pregnancy at all. She did not need to be doted on. She's one of those nurses that works in the ER till the moment she pops. That's Harrod. She didn't need anybody. Capable needs to be needed. So she found someone who genuinely needed her. Like we said before, I don't think Nux could have completed his arc in the way that he did without her. He genuinely needed her, and she genuinely needed to be needed.
1: Yeah, she had compassion to offer, and he was the person that needed that compassion.
0: Another question, then. If Angharad had survived, could Nux have completed his arc? Because if Angharad had survived, Capable would have stuck by her side, may not have bonded with Nux. And without Capable, I think we've already decided that Nux wouldn't have had the emotional support to Ark.
1: If Angharad had survived the canyon, I don't necessarily know who would have gone back to the lookout because Capable probably would not have volunteered. She would have wanted to stay with Angharad. So it would have been Toast or Cheeto or maybe even the Dag who would go back there and they would not react the same way that Capable would.
0: I could see the dad going back there, wanting to get out of the crowded cab. I think that was part of Capable's motivation. She was grieving and needed to go grieve in private. But there's a lot of people in that cab. I think she just needed some alone time, which is too bad she never actually got it. But, you know, whatever. So I could see almost any of the wives, except Cheeto, definitely except Cheeto, saying, hey, you know what? I could really use a break from so many people. I will go back to the lookout.
1: But... Without the loss of Harrod, I don't see any of them having as measured and balanced a response to Nux as capable exhibited in this movie. It would have sparked off another fight. <laughs> so,
0: timeline-wise, we pretty quickly trade Harrod for Nux. hmm
1: Is that a good trade?
0: Ooh. Well, that is a tough trade because Harrod was so likable. She was smart and quick, and she stood up to max... And of course, she was super pregnant, so there was so much possibility for the future in her. So giving that up so that we could have Nux and his, yes, hope for the future, but limited.
1: I think if Ang Herod had survived, it would have limited the other wives. It would not have given them the chance to show off what they could do, because they were all second seat to her. I agree. Any other discussion about Nux in Morton Joe or the War Boys or anything like that?
0: We didn't really talk about the War Boys at all, but honestly, they didn't really come up in our discussion, so I think we can kind of leave them there.
1: I can say the same for Joe's other sons, Rictus and Corpus. They just didn't factor into what we were talking about, and they were roughly straightforward. I think the major thing about them is that Corpus features pretty heavily in the framing story in the comics, but that's outside of the movie, so... If you want to talk about the comics, go out and buy the comic, damn it. (laughs) Buy the comic. Make sure Mark gets his money. I hope that there's a deal where Mark gets a little cut of every issue that's sold. I don't think that's how comics work, but that's beside the point. Because here we are at the end of the week. We are leading into week 40, which is going to be the final three episodes of this season. When we come back on Monday, the credits will continue to roll, but... We've got a new friend coming to join us for a seldom seen, for this podcast at least, inside look at what it's like to drive, punch, and tumble their way through the post-apocalypse. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
0: Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers.
1: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBautista.com.
0: Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone.
1: If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our tea Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full.
0: Thank you for joining us for Minute 117 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.